When you look into Discover Student Loans, what you see might surprise you. We can help cover your college costs, don't charge you fees, and give you cash rewards for good grades. Ready to apply? Visit discoverstudentloans.com. Limitations apply. Three, two, one. Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. Today's show is an interview with guest Dr. Glenn Livingston. Now, we talked about binge eating, overeating, and how to overcome these things. I must say for my part that while I usually record these things in the morning in Korea, it's nighttime here now, and I think it took an effect on me because there were a few times where I just um, lost my train of thought, and uh, I think I think it might end up being a little embarrassing, frankly. But luckily, we had a very gracious and genial guest in Glenn. He was excellent, and um, one way I really enjoyed Uh, the interview was that he was a really good storyteller and he brought in his own personal story into to combine with his uh, professional expertise and really painted a good picture of as to how you can think about and start to take steps into uh, overcoming uh, overeating and binge eating and the belief that you can do it it's very possible for everybody so uh, there's a lot to learn in this interview and then I think um, if you go in and see um, what kind of person he is and what he has to say and how uh, powerful the ideas seem, then you'll want to go learn more, which you'll be able to find out how to do in the interview. So let's go there without further ado. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, everybody. Welcome now to our interview. I'm with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn Livingston, PhD, is a veteran uh, psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, American Demographics, or many other major media outlets. You may have also heard him on ABC, WGN, and or CBS Radio or UPN TV. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight, and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Dr. Livingston, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And, yeah, uh, me too. Please call me Glenn. Glenn, no problem. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Livingston right. was my, my dad. Yes, that's what my dad always said. Yeah, I, I, Mr. Bolton's my dad. All um, right. All right, Glenn, this sounds great. Um, I'm going to jump in with a pretty big one. Get us, get us right in here. Why are overeating, stress eating, and binge eating so prevalent in our culture today? Well, I think there's a perfect storm to generate overeating. Um, you know, when I, when I worked for the big food and big pharma industries, big food in particular, um, it became clear to me that there are billions of dollars that are going into having rocket scientists engineer these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and mm-hmm. excitotoxins 
And it's all designed to hit our bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. When you combine that with the fact that people like good news about their bad habits, and so there's a lot of junk science out there, and it's fairly easy to get publicity for it, mm-hmm. which will say, you know, you should have this much chocolate. Eggs are good for you. Eggs are bad for you. I, I mean, there's just so much confusion about what we are supposed to eat. Um, and we didn't have chocolate bars and chips and bags and boxes and containers on the savannah while we were evolving. So we're, we're a little bit screwed. There's a, there's a defense against it. We're a little bit screwed like that. Yeah. And then, you know, the advertising industry, they really know how to make us believe that this stuff is good for us. Um, and, and, or at least to trigger the evolutionary buttons that say we needed to survive. So for example, I remember working with a VP of marketing at a major food bar manufacturer and he told me he was, he was about to leave the company and he said, um, you know, the biggest, most profitable insight they had was to take the vitamins out of the bar because they were making it taste bad and they were expensive. And what he did instead was he put the money into the packaging. So they made it very shiny and a multitude of diverse colors. And in nature, a multitude of diverse shiny colors would signal signal the availability of a multitude of diverse nutrients. So they tell you to eat a rainbow, right? Like think of a salad with green lettuce and red tomatoes and purple cabbage and blueberries and carrots. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you're getting a diversity of nutrients. That's what our brain is set up to recognize. Mm -hmm. But here they're faking us out. Um, Robert, Robert Cialdini talked about this, this parasitic fish in nature mm-hmm. where um, there's a little fish and a big fish and the big fish has actually a symbiotic relationship with another little fish where if a little fish comes over to it and does a little dance, the big fish goes into a bit of a trance and opens its mouth and the little fish comes in, cleans its teeth. And it's a win-win for the little fish because it gets... Um, it gets all the little bits of extra food and algae and whatever the big fish was eating off of the teeth. And the big fish gets it's a free tooth job, right? Mm-hmm. Free, free dental cleaning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it turns out there's another fish that figured this out. And this is actually a carnivorous fish. And what the carnivorous fish does, it's also about the same size as the other little fish. And it goes in front of the big fish and it does the same little dance and puts the big fish into a trance and then it proceeds to rip its, its gums apart and eat its lips and everything like that. Um, God, okay. I'm, I'm sorry this is a disgusting story. This no, early. It's, it's perfect. No, I keep going. It's, I, I, it seems very relevant. I get it. Go on, well, so, please. So what I'm trying to say is that I think that – I don't think these people are all bad people. I don't think they're all doing it without conscience. But I think what our food industry has discovered is that we have these trance buttons – we have these buttons that say hand over the chocolate and, and nobody gets hurt. We have these buttons that override our best judgment and they break our hungry and full meter and they get transfixed on these um, false little fish, right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the packaging and the, you know, the concentrations, it's, it's a false signal to our evolutionary brain that what we need to survive is there. And so the common sense English way I have of encapsulating this so people remember is that every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, 
with some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the back. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you have, you know, billions of dollars in the food industry, billions of dollars in the advertising industry, five to 7,000 messages per year beamed at us about food per year. Maybe a half dozen of them are trying to get us to have more fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our survival drives have been stolen. You can walk out of a McDonald's and there's a Burger King across the street. You know, you can walk out of a Starbucks and there's a Starbucks. Across. <laughs> not saying that everything there in either of these places is all bad. Um, no, certainly not. Yeah. But, but where, where being programmed to move away from our survival drive and what, what happens when you do that? I know I'm over talking a little bit. So if you want to interrupt me, please feel free. No, no, I, I, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to quote one more study and then I want to explain to you what actually happens when you move away from your survival drives. Right. Please. Um, yeah. So that, there are a set of studies in the late fifties, early sixties where the, uh, they started with rats and they worked up to higher mammals. And I don't think these were ethical vegan studies or anything like that, but, um, but they were done. And what they did is they wired the rat's brain, the pleasure center in the rat's brain, to an electrode, and they connected that to a lever that the rat could push. Do you want to guess what happened? Uh, Not really. Okay. (laughs) You you go for it. So the rat pushed, the rats pushed the lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival needs. So they they bypassed their survival drive. The rats were no longer interested in food. They were no longer interested in taking care of their young. Mm -hmm. Um, Nursing mother rats would abandon their young to go press the Mm -hmm. lever thousands of times per day. Mm -hmm. Male rats would climb over painful electrical grids. They neglected their survival drives. Yeah, right. And I don't think that anyone is putting electrodes in our brains. But when you look at all the money that goes into researching these bright, shiny objects and these bags and boxes and containers. Um, you know, I, I think you can argue there are some chemical electrodes in our brain. Yeah. A- and then after that, the addiction treatment industry says without evidence that it's impossible for us to resist if we're addicted and that we, you know, we have to pray for a higher power to take it away from us and we get a sponsor and, you know, that we have a disease and it's going to get worse over the years. And, um, and there's no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and I, I, you know, I have a chip on my shoulder about all this cause I used to be 280 pounds and I struggled with eating most of my life. Mm-hmm. I could tell you more of that story if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, so that's why I think there's this perfect storm and the more you succumb to the industrial processed foods, the more you succumb to these supersized stimuli, the more your brain down-regulates its pleasure response to regular food. So if you have a candy bar every day, then fruits and vegetables are not going to taste good to you anymore. And that's, everybody knows to lose weight, you have to eat more whole natural foods. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe you're a low-carb person and you think it's just like vegetables and whole, you know, fish or something like that. But, Mm -hmm. but um, everybody knows you have to move back towards more whole natural foods But people say, I don't like them. They taste awful to me. Well, it's because you've been trained that, you know, chips and salsa and, you know, um, I'm trying not to mention any brand brand names. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think we'll be all right. But I I hear what you're saying. I got like, my wife and I talk about this all the time. We've really adjusted or I certainly have in a couple of years because I used to be all about the sweets. I grew up like that. Um, 
And it was really hard to break my ideas about that. And not just ideas, but even my nat- my actual feeling towards my taste. And I notice now, like even just milk and coffee or something, a latte tastes like a, and a latte in Korea, they, it's, there's no sugar in it. Just milk. Oh. And it, it just oh. tastes sweet. Like it just tastes sweet to me. It tastes like I'm drinking a macchiato and all I've got is a, is a coffee with milk in it. Right. And, wait, wait, wait. Uh, go ahead. I mean, what, what you're describing is the phenomenon called upregulation. See, if you overstimulate your taste buds and your dopaminergic pleasure system, um, then it downregulates so that, you know, your macchiato is not going to, your, um, your latte is not going to taste sweet or you can't really tell the different subtleties of flavor between, you know, Colombian versus Brazilian. Mm-hmm. And the good news is, this is the first piece of good news, that when you remove those things from your diet, or largely mm-hmm. remove them from your diet. I'm not advocating that everybody has to give them up. It's we fought we fought wars for freedom, so I'm not going to tell you what to have. Big time. But when when you get a lot of that out of your diet, your nervous system can upregulate again. And I think there's research that says your taste buds double in sensitivity in six to eight weeks. Is that um, right? Okay. Yeah. So so there's hope. There's definitely hope. Well, I'm an example. I know there's hope. That's why I try to tell some of my friends. I'm like, no, it's real. I don't. Uh, you know, stuff that's barely what you would barely call sweet i think it's tastes sweet it's beautiful and uh you know and it's and it's right in the in the whole food natural food le- uh, league there um so it's good as well um, and, then, and then and then if you do eat fruit fruit you get curious about the difference between different species of fruit like a delicious apple versus a fuji apple versus a gala apple mm-hmm. i actually get excited about those things now so yeah well good for you that's great um all right well let's see this then um so I, I, let's put it up together. You said the, there's a, it's kind of a perfect storm. So it's the food industry. Sound, it sounds quite sinister, actually, but I do understand what you mean by it. it's not all bad people. I know there's a lot of bad ideas out there, and I think some what I would call evil ideas to the extent people understand them uh, in, in many uh, realms of, of life. Uh, but ne- I don't necessarily think that everybody who subscribes to them or, or even acts on them really understands them deeply or thinks about it. But there are, there are some level of sinister people and then a great number that aren't. I'll buy that. Um, you, and then it's a, also a, a false psychological model of addiction and evolution as well. So we got this whole perfect storm going. And, if, and the advertising industry. And the advertising industry, which I, I was kind of lumping with the food industry. But I get, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, if, if, a, if that's a bad psychological model of addiction, what is a good model of addiction? What is addiction? Um, addiction is really the experience that you've lost yourself. Like, like there's no self between impulse and action. And, and, um, when, when people engage in a habit over and over, over, that's very reinforcing and pleasurable, um, the brain myelinates pathways between the stimulus and the behavior that become more and more automatic. It, it's a time-saving and energy-saving mechanism, really. And it, uh, it, can, it gets to the point where f- people feel compelled to do it. It gets to the point where they uh, feel like they've got no choice but to focus on the object of desire. But 
It's not. Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CAPITAL200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. We play for bravery. We play for big hearts in tiny bodies. We play for the fighter within. We play for life reclaimed, disease in remission, stories rewritten. We're Children's Hospital of Richmond at VCU, and we nurture the champion in every child. We fight the forces that threaten them, and we play to win. Learn how at chrichmond.org. Really true. The brain is wired in such a way to overcome that if you want to. There's um, the part of the brain that we think is responsible for addiction. And I'm, I'm a psychologist, not a neurologist, so yes. a neuro, neurologist might take me to task. But if you think of the earliest part of the brain, the, um, the reptilian brain, the most primitive part of the brain, what, what it knows when it looks something, at something in the environment is, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? So it's important mm-hmm. to realize there's no love there. Because everybody thinks addiction is the act of not loving yourself enough and it, it is self-destructive yeah. but loving yourself more is not going to fix this that's my opinion okay um above and and the reptilian brain is where this very primitive part of the brain is where survival instincts live like the feast and famine response you know the response that says well there hasn't been there's been a paucity of calories and nutrition available lately now that it is available, let's gorge and hoard as much fat as we can because we're going to go through another famine soon. Yeah. Um, the fight or flight response, eat, mate, or kill survival responses. Then there's the mammalian brain on top of that, which says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill this thing, um, before you eat, mate, or, or kill this thing, what impact will this have on the people that you love? What impact will this have on your tribe? What impact will this have on your social connections in the world. Mm -hmm. And then there's a neocortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain. And if you don't believe in evolution, these parts of the brain still exist. Um, The neocortex says, before you eat, made or kill that thing, what about your long-term goals? And what about your contribution to society? And what about your big projects? And what about your creativity and spirituality and your music and your art? Um, And what happens in addiction is that the pathways are myelinated so that the lizard brain gets activated and it kind of blows all this stuff away. That, that's why you could say, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks and you hear this little voice in your head that says, you know, you worked out hard enough and you won't get any weight. And, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows in a plant. So that's really a vegetable anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then boom, this is all gone. And you're thinking, well, I must have a need for self-love. I must be not engaged in enough self-care. And so, you know, poor me and I have to, I got to do this. I get it. Um, so 
the model of addiction, and I, and I didn't invent this. I, I got this from a number of different authors, but the most prevalent one was Jack Trimpey, who wrote Rational Recovery. It, it has more to do with trying to move the battleground from the primitive survival response, the, which doesn't really have much of what we think of as us in there, mm -hmm. to the neocortex and to the lesser extent the mammalian brain. Um, and so most of my life, I mean, if you if you ever stopped by a 7-Eleven in Syosset, New York, and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts, it's probably because I got there before you. Okay. Um, most of my life I was, you know, I, 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 I was uh, very obsessed with food and it really bothered me. And I tried from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists, mm -hmm. I always took a psychological motto and thought, well, the reason I must be obsessed with food is because there's a hole in my heart. And if I could fill the hole in my heart, then it wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. Okay. And so I spent about 30 years trying to figure out how do I love myself well? How do, how do I be kinder to myself? How do I seek a more spiritual existence? I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I saw the best psychologists and psychiatrists. I, I knew them in New York because of my family. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a very soulful journey. And I learned a lot about myself. And I don't regret it. It helped me become the person that I am. Mm -hmm. But it didn't really help me with food. What, what helped me with food eventually was flipping the paradigm to the idea that I was more like an alpha wolf and me, I had to take control of this thing down there the same way that I would take control of my bladder or my testicles, right? Because mm -hmm. um, it might be, and this is not true, but it might be that I really have to pee right now and I would still be able to complete this meeting because I would tell my bladder, okay, that's a powerful biological urge, but I'll take care of that later because I'm in control. I'm the alpha wolf of this path, right? Okay. And when the alpha wolf deals with a challenger for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It, it growls and it snarls and it says, you know, get back in line or I'll kill you. I, I'm the boss here, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I recognize that I needed to flip the paradigm in part because what I was seeing in the industry um, what, because everything we just reviewed that I was seeing in the industry, mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or feed me well enough or mm -hmm. that I was in a bad marriage or anything like that, it, it, or that I didn't love myself enough. These were very powerful forces mm -hmm. aligned externally against me. Right. Um, the, the thing that finally got me to change, and I'll, I'll tell you what solved it for me, and I'll tell you the model that I represent now. Yeah. This is maybe a little bit of an embarrassing story, but it, it starts with this big study I did myself. I used to get paid a lot of money to do all these big studies for these companies. Mm -hmm. And when internet clicks were cheap, I realized I could get tens of thousands of people to take a survey. So I intercepted people. Mostly they were searching about things they were stressed about in life. And I intercepted them and I asked them, what were they stressed about? And in what ways did they turn to food that they couldn't stop or felt like they couldn't stop once they started? and looked at very specific relationships. And what I found were three things. People who struggled with chocolate, like me. I always started my binges with chocolate. Later it would be you know, pizzas and Pop-Tarts and everything else after that, but it always started with chocolate. <laughs> People that were um, lonely or brokenhearted, they tended to struggle with chocolate, or maybe a little depressed. People who were um, stressed at work tended to gravitate towards chips and pretzels and crunchy salty things 
Mm-hmm. And people who were stressed at home tended to gravitate towards bread and bagels and pasta and chewy soft things, right? Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. And I still think it's very interesting. Me too. I'm trying to see if I can guess it, but I, I can't make a connection. Well, I'll tell you up front, I don't entirely know the why because I wound up going okay. in a different direction. Um, but I investigated, I, I started with my mom because she raised me and she's also yeah. a psychotherapist. Um, mm-hmm. She was, she passed a little while ago. And Sorry. I said, mom, you know, I'm unhappy. I'm not in a good marriage. And, you know, I'm a little lonely and brokenhearted, but, and I go to chocolate all the time. How did that start? Did that pattern start sometime in my youth? And she gets this horrible look on her face and she goes, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, it's okay. This was, this was like 12 years ago. So I was in my forties and I said, mom, it was 40 years ago, whatever it is. I forgive you. I love you. I'm just trying to figure this stuff out. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because we're trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I'm thinking I'm going to be an army widow with two small kids and no way to support myself really. And it would be awful. And at the same time, your grandfather, my dad, he had just got out of prison and he was guilty and I had always idolized him and my world was crushed. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, half the time when you came running to me for food or love or just a little bit of you know, comfort, I was sitting and staring at the wall feeling anxious and depressed myself. And I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you. Mm-hmm. So I kept a little refrigerator on the floor with a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in it. And I would say, honey, go get your Bosco. And I'd go running over or crawling over to the refrigerator and I'd open it up and I'd suck on the bottle and I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Okay. Okay. Now, if knowing why we're going to fix things, then at that moment, um, just like in a movie, I would have had this miraculous insight. I would have hugged my mom and we'd had a big cry and we'd forgive each other. Mm -hmm. And I'd never struggle with chocolate again. Right. That would be the dramatic ending. Okay. Um, you know, and I, I did have a hug and mom and I forgive each other. And it was a really good talk to have, by the way, because I learned a lot and I was softer on myself after that. Very um, good. But, but my chocolate eating actually got worse. Uh, okay. The, the reason my chocolate eating got worse was because there was this voice inside me, this little voice that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to keep on eating chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff kind of swirled together in my head. And I said, okay, I need to be an alpha wolf. Maybe if you think of the emotion as a fire, maybe it's not about putting out a fire. Because you could have a roaring fire in the living room in a well-contained fireplace. And that becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around. They share stories. They they laugh, they cry, they make memories. That's an asset. That's not a, a liability. Mm-hmm. Maybe the liability is that there are holes in the fireplace and there's this little voice that pokes holes in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. So what if I stop trying to figure out what lit the fire? What if I stop trying to put out the fire? And I just figure out how to concentrate on that bridge that lets the ashes escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that that bridge was the voice of justification. And that's what I had to work on disempowering. Here's how I did it. I, this is a little, this is embarrassing because 
you know, I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I was the CEO of this company and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's going to be private. I decided I wasn't going to teach this. I was just going to do it privately at that point. Mm-hmm. Well. I decided I had an inner pig. I decided I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. Okay. This, this was before I was a vegan. Um, it's a book of yours as well, I think, that one, right? The... It's, called, it's called Never Binge Again. That's my book. No, yeah. but the, one of the, uh, another one with the inner pig. Is there something with well, the inner pig? My, my autobiography with regards to food is called Me, My Pig, and I. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I just recognized it. That's all. Please, please, go on. That, that's cool. So I, I decided that I have an inner pig, and I need a way to know when it's squealing. So I said, how am I going to know when it's squealing? Well, I have to draw a very clear line in the sand so I know what healthy food behavior is and unhealthy food behavior is. Like, mm-hmm. Even like a clear bullseye because – if you don't know what you're aiming for, you'll probably hit something else. So, so I said, okay, well, I'm never going to have chocolate on a weekday again. That would be a good way to start, right? And then if I was in that Starbucks and my pig started, you know, saying things like, you can just start tomorrow, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my pig. It's squealing for its pig slop. Mm-hmm. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And as ridiculous and crude as that sound, as, as unsophisticated and like antithetical to all the other things I stand for in the world is, mm-hmm. that's what started to wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those microseconds to remember who I was and why I made the role in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could say that it was a miracle and 100% I just made the right decision from there. That's not really what happened. Mm-hmm. What was a miracle was it cleared away the confusion. Mm-hmm. I no longer felt like I was powerless. I no longer felt like there was this mysterious force inside of me. Mm-hmm. I remembered who I was. And sometimes I would make the right decision. It no longer felt like a compulsion or an addiction. Mm-hmm. It just felt like of my own free will, sometimes I would say, screw it, I'm going to have it anyway. But sometimes I'd make the right decision. And then it occurred to me that nobody was making the rules for me. So why am I rebelling against the rules that I'm making for myself? Why don't I just change the rules? If I wanted to have chocolate on Wednesdays and Saturdays, I could do that. Um, And I experimented with a whole bunch of different rules. Uh, You know, there were rules about what I would always do. There were rules about what I would do sometimes. I experimented with a whole bunch of different rules until I found a set that really worked for me that I was happy to comply with. And um, that's when things really clicked. And it it took took a year or two to really get to that point. From that point, I kept the journal. So then whenever the pig would challenge my rules, I would keep a journal and write down what it said, mm-hmm. and then I'd write down why it was wrong. For example, if the pig says, you can just start tomorrow, let's have one last time. Well, the problem with that is that at every moment, we are either reinforcing or extinguishing those neural pathways. Like We, we are learning machines. Yes. And so if you, ha- if you have a craving and you indulge that today, it's going to be harder to give up chocolate tomorrow. Yes. So if you're in a hole, stop digging. So I, I, would, um, I would write down these things that the pig would say, and then I would disempower them. And I started to understand that the way that the pig operated was with a half-truth and a bigger lie, right? So it seems like it would be easier to start tomorrow. It seems like I worked out hard enough, I won't gain weight, it would be just the same thing. The big, but the bigger lie is that I'm actually training my brain to be more addicted, yes. and so... It's always easiest to start right now, which is why I'm looking right at the camera. If there's anybody here who's got a piece of chocolate in their mouth or something that they know shouldn't be in their mouth, go spit it out, come back and listen to the rest right now, and we'll, 
Mm -hmm. We'll show you how to keep that. <laughs> yes. You've got so, the control, right? Yeah. I mean, I like this idea of the, you take some seconds at the moment of impulse, because I think that's what we need to do is that at that impulse, we have to really ask ourselves better questions about, yeah. you know, like we have that one thing telling us this is okay, this, 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 and then you have to ask, well, is this true? Is this really what I want? And, and, and let, let that conscious, whatever you're going to call that person, the you, the alpha, I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to call that, but that conscious person or that, uh, the neocortex, the mammalian brain, I'm trying to put some of these terms I, 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 up. I call it us. I, I, I call that us and I call the rest of it the pig. Okay. I call that me. Yeah. And then pig yeah. is the, is the, the liar. And, the and you don't have to call it a pig if that bothers no. you. You can call it your food monster. It doesn't really matter. doesn't call. Yeah. No, it doesn't yeah. bother me at all. All right. What, yeah, go ahead. What I subsequently learned about making that transition was that because the root of that addiction seems to be in the lizard brain, in the reptilian brain, mm -hmm. and because that's something that's activated as an emergency response where it feels like we need this to survive, uh, I've learned that that's related to our sympathetic nervous system that gets us ready for fight or flight, kind of gets us revved up for those emergency actions. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned that when you hear the pig squealing, if you do things that, that will activate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of us that helps us to rest and digest and say that all is well and it's okay to take time and think and go back into your neocortex and make plans. I've learned that if you do things like um, take a deep breath and let it out for longer than you let it in. Lori Hammond calls this a 7-11 breath. You okay. breathe in for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of 11. I'm not really doing it right now, but you know what I mean? No, yeah, yeah. That, that will help activate your parasympathetic nervous system and make it easier for you to move back to your rational brain again. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, stand up and stretch and do some yoga, that, that will make, you, make it easier for you to do that. If you do nothing more than carry a pad and pencil around with you and write down what the pig is saying, well, it turns out that writing is much more of an upper brain activity, whereas, you know, the kind of short, fast, urgent thoughts that we have uh, are more of a lower brain, brain activity and, or at least stimulated by the lower brain. And so the act of writing itself can take you out of that state of emergency and give you those extra seconds to do it. And so what I have people do is do that 7-11 breath to calm down have them carry around a, a pad and a paper. And then I have them challenge their pig and say, okay, pig, why do you want me to eat this? Give me your best shot. Why do you want me to have this? And they write down exactly what it says. And they say, well, why is the pig wrong? How is it lying to me? And then after they've written down all the ways the pig is wrong, then they say, well, how would keeping the pig in a cage right now make me a happier and better person? And this kind of links back to some motivational interviewing we do to help them understand why they're trying to follow a particular set of rules. Mm -hmm. um, and we find this is really effective. It, I mean, it certainly worked for me. Yes. You know, I, I, I lost about, depending upon which day I weigh myself, 75, 80 pounds. Yeah. Um, Congratulations, it's a, by the way. That's great. It's a different life. It's a way different it's, life. I know and, a little bit about it. Yeah, no, and, and, the, and the bigger deal is that the food obsession went away. The bigger deal is that I could sit with a patient now and, you know, talk to them and be 100% present as opposed to thinking when I'm going to go get a chocolate bar and a pizza. 
Mm-hmm. So that, that's the bigger deal. Excellent. Okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, no, it's not, not at all. It's, it's all kinds of stuff. And you're just, you, this is stuff I was going to ask you about. And you're just rolling it into one. So it's, uh, it's working really well. If you don't, you know, I don't need to be okay. talking. This is no great. Okay. I'm here to I'm here to, to to hear you. Nobody wants to hear me. All right. Um, You're going to give me a you, swell time. What do you mean uh, when you say character trumps willpower? It sounds like we're talking about that a little bit. But what is and how do how does one build character? Because we I, what's what I want to I want to know what to do and how can we affect this stuff? How can we okay. defeat this pig and stuff? Okay. Um, what I mean by character trumps willpower mm-hmm. is that willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And it turns out that we can only make so many good decisions per day. It seems like it burns some glucose in our brain in a particular area. Mm-hmm. And we are impinged upon by a multitude of decisions all day long, including food decisions. Yes. So, you know, in our society, because of the advertising industry and because of all the messages about you should eat this or you should eat that, because we watch characters on TV eating something delicious, Mm-hmm. Um, because of all the songs and jingles, which everybody thinks doesn't affect them, but it turns out it affects you more when you think it doesn't because your resistance is down. Mm-hmm. Um, because of all that, we are constantly impinged upon by food decisions, but we also, also have to decide when we get an email, do I delete this or report it to spam? Do I forward it to someone else? Do I delegate it? Do I defer it? Mm-hmm. And that wears down your willpower also. Turns out that people have trouble resisting marshmallows. I'm going somewhere with all this. People yep. have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems beforehand. Uh, it's really interesting. Yes, um, I get it. So, so we wake up with more willpower in the morning than we have in the evening. That's why so many people have trouble at night with food. Mm-hmm. What character does, character is how you habitually respond in the face of temptation. So... And and the way that you can define that is with a rule. In our culture, we're taught not to use rules. We're taught to use guidelines. We're taught to say, I will avoid chocolate 90% of the time and I'll indulge 10% of the time, Mm -hmm. which is a good idea in theory. Like if you could actually do that, that that works for a lot of people. Um, The problem is that every time you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, you have to ask yourself, is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? You have to make another food decision. Yes. Whereas if you said, if you use a rule as opposed to a guideline and said, I will only ever eat chocolate on the last three calendar days of the month, that's still 10% of the time. You're still accomplishing the same goal. But now 27 days a month, your food decisions about chocolate have been made. And now you don't require willpower. You don't have to wear down your willpower to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, People are concerned that this is too strict or too disciplined until I point out that we're doing it all the time without knowing it. So if you go into a diner and you, you know, go sit down at a table up front and the waitress says, I'll be right back. I just have to get your menus. And there is no video camera. There are no windows. There's nobody up front that would see you. And there's a $10 tip on the table. Would you take that tip? Would you take the money? Certainly not. How come? You're very convicted about that. How, how come? It's just part of my character is how I can define it. But right. I, how, how did I get there? I'm gonna, Go ahead and tell us how, we, how I built that. Well, you've got an unwritten rule, 
what you've internalized through years of acculturation that says, I'm not a thief. I never take other people's money, mm -hmm. right? There are all sorts of things like that. You, you never kick a policeman in the tush, I assume? I never do. Because you're a law-abiding citizen. That's right. Okay. One day I'm going to come across someone who says, yes, I do. <laughs> it may be somebody. And there are. I mean, yeah, I've said this in, 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 in hockey before. With, um, it was like I, I play hockey or I did in my youth. And, and, and I just know there were some kind of guys that were a little bit scary because they would get to a point and they would swing with like a stick or something. And, and that would be their part of their impulse. And I said, it's impossible for me to get to that point because yeah. I have it at such a point. It's just, it's impossible for me to do that. If I lost it, it would be dropping it and maybe punching or grabbing or something, but I couldn't do that. And where yeah. those other guys are, I'm scared of them, not because they're tough, but because they could like, they don't break have an ankle. They, they yeah, have a defective character. Built. And that's what I mean. There's like, they, they don't have that, like they might take the $10. And I yeah. feel like you, you can build. So I understand. I'm, I'm just trying to demonstrate that I understand what you mean by we can build this thing. And now I'm really curious, how do we build it with uh, food? Well, the, the, the way you do that is to come up with one simple rule to start with. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that the pig does to defeat us is to try to make our diet overly restrictive and it sets the bar too high. Mm -hmm. There's a nursery rhyme that says, um, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. And that's how most people live with food. Like, okay, now I'm dieting. No, I'm not. And I like to start people with one simple rule that might turn the ship around. Maybe you're not going to lose weight at first but you're going to know that you're doing something good for yourself and it'll build some strength and momentum and it'll teach you how to play this game. So, so, so for example, I knew a guy was a trucker and he had to lose about 200 pounds. And he said, I'm on the road all day long. I have to eat at fast food places. I'm not going to stop doing that. And so his coach told him, well, can you come up with one simple thing? And he says, I won't go back for seconds. I'll never go back for seconds again. And he proceeded to lose 150 pounds. Oh. Um, not, not just with that one rule, because the one rule, the one rule started the ship in the right direction. Then he got a little excited yes. and he added another one. Um, and what the one rule does, when you say, I'll never go back for seconds again, now all of a sudden the target is really clear. Without a clear target, you can't define what's the pig and what's you. Um, because, you know, going back for sex could be okay. Maybe it's not okay, depending if you're hungry or what. But if you say, I'll never go back for seconds again, then any voice in your head that suggests maybe you should, do you're really hungry, it was an extra long haul, all of a sudden, now, that, now you know that that's a squeal. And so now you know you can engage in that whole sequelae that I suggested before mm -hmm. in order to disempower that squeal. And so that's how you start to do that. See, when you say, I'll never go back for seconds again, what you're really saying is I've made a decision to become the kind of person who doesn't eat seconds. That's what you're really saying. If you focus on I'll never go back for seconds again, it becomes like white knuckling and it gets really irritating. But if you decide that you're becoming a different kind of person, then you're making a character commitment. And it actually becomes very relieving because a lot of decisions have left you. I eventually evolved to the point that I just didn't eat chocolate at all. I had a rule for probably about five years that said I'll never eat chocolate again. At some point, I dropped the rule because I didn't need it. I, I didn't start eating chocolate again. I just realized I'd become a person who never eats chocolate, and I don't need that on my food plan. I don't have to see that every day. It's just out of my life. I don't mm -hmm. want it. It looks like a big bag of chemicals to me.
Right. So that, know, that's how you build character. That, that's how you do it. That's excellent. You know, I, I can't help but think of this. Now, I'm, I'm not a, a health and nutrition expert, and I'm not a psychologist. Um, and on my blog, I just kind of tried to describe my experience and kind of at least say that this is what's happened to me, and, I'm, and this is how I feel now. This is how I did feel, and I can't say exactly why and all that stuff. And I had one article on my blog called Delimit to be Free in Diet, and it was me trying to describe my experience where I made certain rules where I put things in their place and said, this is, these are the limits. And then within those li- strict limits, I just operate freely and don't feel deprived. I don't feel stressed right. about it all. And then, of course, after a while, you don't even you start to lift the limit. You don't even need them anymore because I just I'm not that guy anymore. It's I'd amazing. Love to read that article. Could you put that article in the show notes? Maybe I'd love to read that. Sure, go for it. Yeah, I mean it's okay. but very it's, amateur. It's like a, that's okay, but but I, I like to read people's experience and how they yeah. how they articulate it because it helps me to be more fluent with my my clients. Okay. Um, it's like driving. We, we have certain rules that we follow. We stop at red lights. We stop at so- stop signs, um, except for some certain people in my family. <laughs> but, but between the lines, we have freedom. Between the lines, we can daydream and make phone calls. And, you know, we, we pay attention, but it becomes more of a free-floating attention. And we know that we're not a person that runs red lights. Um, and we're not a person that speeds or mostly not a person that speeds. And so I tell people that discipline actually creates freedom. If it weren't for the traffic lights, you couldn't really get around town because there would be too much danger of an accident. The protection from the accidents, which has to be balanced against the need to freely move around the city, um, but it requires that discipline. Uh, freedom sits on top of, on top of discipline. It's not, uh, it's not opposed to it. That's right. That's yes. This is that's what I was trying to articulate in that in that article. And and generally, when I when I think about it and try to talk about it with people, um, how I feel feel free about the way I eat now. I don't feel deprived ever, as I as I said earlier. But well, well, that, your you're describing will, it. Your pig, by the way, will tell you that you're going to feel deprived forever. You can't give up chocolate. You can even can't give it up during the week. You're going to miss the mouthfeel. You're going to be missing out. We're going to have FOMO all the time. Mm-hmm. We're going to be sitting with our friends. They're going to be having chocolate and coffee, and you're going to want it. You're going to feel deprived. You're eventually going to give in, so you might as well give in right now. Right? That's what the pig will say. But what it doesn't tell you is what it will deprive you of if you keep eating chocolate. Like if I kept eating chocolate, I'd be carrying 75 extra pounds around with me. I couldn't hike to the top of the mountain freely and enjoy the fresh air and the feeling of ownership and victory that I love to feel on top. I couldn't be walking in the world as a confident, thin, healthy man. I'd be risking cardiovascular disease and strokes and, you know, diabetes. And um, my life would be a tenth of what it is now. Uh, And when I compare that deprivation to the deprivation of the moment, people say, well, how, how do I just not have chocolate? Don't I miss the taste? Do I, have I convinced myself that chocolate doesn't taste good? No, I think chocolate would be orgasmically amazing. I, I, I think that these companies are really good at producing this stuff. Um, and if you can eat it without going out of control, God bless you, go, go enjoy it. But for me, I've chosen to abstain from certain short-term pleasures so I can enjoy the long-term contented life instead. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my answer to the deprivation trap. And Excellent. I got that, I, a lot of that came from Janine Roth, by the way. Okay, sure. Thank you. Breaking free from emotional eating. Yeah. 
All right, perfect. Um, I, I like this one too. You've, I, you say commit with perfection, but forgive with dignity. This is another important piece of this process because when people are trying to do this and they're going to they're gonna make their rules and maybe the guy goes for the seconds on the, on the truck stop, how do you commit with perfection, perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity? Because I think people beat themselves up too much and then fall further. What- people do the opposite. What they typically do and the advice typically given is to aim for progress, not perfection. Um, but then if you make a mistake, they beat themselves up like crazy. And so if you look at the psychology of winners, and there's a whole series of studies on this, let's take an Olympic archer. When an Olympic archer is aiming at the bullseye, before they let the arrow go, they become one with the bullseye. Most of them will tell you they could see the arrow going into the bullseye before they lose, right? And they need to feel a certainty, a perfect commitment to that arrow going into the bullseye. That doesn't mean that they hit the bullseye every time. As a matter of fact, the the champion archer last year uh, got three out of 10 arrows in the bullseye or something like that. However, that doesn't stop them from aiming with perfection. If they miss the bullseye, they don't say, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well shoot the rest of the arrows into the air. There's no hope for me. Maybe I'll just shoot them into the audience and who cares, right? Yeah. They, They stand up. They say, okay, what went wrong? By how much did I miss the bullseye? In what direction? Maybe I didn't account for the air resistance. Maybe I need to pull back just a little harder. Maybe I need to adjust my stance a little bit. Once they've done that analysis and made the changes, they drop any guilt or self-castigation and they forgive themselves with dignity and they recommit. Same thing if you happen to touch a hot stove, right? If you touch a hot stove, you want to feel that pain. There are disorders in this world where kids are born without the ability to feel pain and we we can't keep them alive for more than five or six years because they don't know where the sharp edges are, Mm -hmm. right? So pain serves a function. So does guilt and shame. If If you make a mistake, feeling a twinge of guilt or shame, it's just meant to get your attention. That's the psychological function of guilt, the adaptive psychological function in the psyche. But after you touch a hot stove and you say, oh, there's a hot stove over there, I'm either going to turn it off or just watch out, you know, on on the next time. Once you've made that analysis and made the adjustments, you're not supposed to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove right now. Right? Right. Um, Or if if you happen to... If you happen to chip a tooth, you don't could get a hammer and bang the rest of them out. It's a mistake is a mistake. You're supposed to analyze it, uh, make adjustments, recommit with perfection, and then let it go. Mm-hmm. Now, now here, here's a pivotal insight about overeating. And if people took nothing else away from this interview, I'd want them to take this away. Right. When you find yourself ongoingly castigating yourself, you have that negative self-castigating voice, self-critical voice, self-hatred voice after a mistake saying, I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. I'm never going to get this. I always screw up. Why do I always screw up? The function of that voice is actually the pig's attempt to get you to feel too weak to resist the next binge. That voice is binge motivated. You're all that self-criticism it's not because you don't love yourself enough. It's not because, you know, you've got a big hole in your heart that you have to solve and figure out, you know, what was going on with your mama when you were one year old. That voice is stuck in your head because it gets reinforced by the next bench. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do 
and you have to drag yourself out of it at first. It's not going to feel like the right thing to do. And I tell people feelings aren't facts and you don't have mm -hmm. to believe me. You just have to try it mm -hmm. rather than allowing your internal voice of self-criticism and self-hatred to beat you down and, and say, why can't I eat well? Why can't, why can't I stop screwing up? If you keep asking yourself why you can't screwing up, you're programming your brain to find evidence that you're going to keep screwing up. Right, okay. You need to collect evidence of success. You need to say, what did I do right? What can I learn from this binge? Did I have five cupcakes instead of 15? Did I have 5,000 calories instead of 10,000 calories? Did it go on for five hours instead of five days? How come? How was I able to stop that? You, you need to start collecting evidence of success. And then you need to analyze what squeal you missed that convinced you to let it go. Sometimes it was just, F it, we don't care, right? Sometimes the people just say, we don't care. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think you would have made the rule in the first place if you really didn't care. The pig doesn't care. You care very much. So right. you, you need to analyze those kind of things and, and neutralize them and then stand up a name again. <laughs> but you'll find it difficult to continue binging if you refuse to keep yelling at yourself. I learned that from Carol Munter. Okay. You'll find it difficult to keep binging if you refuse to keep yelling at yourself. All right. I love the sound of it. I mean, cause it's just such a big, it's just such a big thing to have to overcome and you need, I mean, uh, yeah, you need to, I don't know. I'm losing my train of thought now, but, uh, but just that thing about not beating yourself up and letting yourself like what you do is reinforce those stories that it is true. Right. And then you go deeper into, uh, a binge and your pig becomes kind of crazy. You start to believe him more and more. Is that, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. getting lost here, but no, uh, you're doing fine. See, yeah. See, but it's so after, a, mis after a mistake, the appropriate attitude is progress, not perfection. Right. Yes. That, that's when you can be kind to yourself. That's when you can say, well, what can I learn from this? How do I go forward? Um, something that's helpful to people in that regards is to understand that the key distinction between people who have lost weight permanently, which I think in the research means five years or more versus those who keep on losing and regaining mm -hmm. is the number of attempts that they have behind them. So it, it seems like the people who succeed all have more failures behind them and they just kept going. The path mm -hmm. to success seems to go through a multitude of failures. So the name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. Fall down seven times, get up eight. That's the old Japanese proverb. All right. when, when you're committing, that's when you want to commit with perfection. Because if you said progress, not perfection, as you're, as you're aiming at your food goal, that just means I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. So, All right. Okay. Um, now, if, someone, if you say that the more times that they failed, then it, the harder it is. If someone has failed so many times, how can you tell them, how can you encourage them to try again with confidence? Um, there are a couple of things. First of all, if you run a highway for a thousand miles and you haven't taken an exit, does that have any impact whatsoever on your ability to take the next one? No. Right. So it doesn't matter that you failed to take the exit for a thousand times. You can take the thousand and first exit if you want to. Yes. The second thing is when the pig says you've failed so many times before, therefore you're going to fail again. It's prognosticating about the future as if it had a time machine. 
It, it doesn't have a time machine. You don't have to worry about the future. The only moment you can put food in your mouth is right now. And because the future is an infinite string of nows, I mean, like, as we are talking, it is still now. And even now it is still now. And it is still yeah. now. It's going to be now. Tomorrow is going to be now. In a month, it's going to be now. In five years. As long as you never binge now, you can be confident that you'll never binge again. You, you have to wrestle the pig squeals about being able to predict the future out of its hands and bring everything back to the present moment and say, I'm just going to follow this rule right now. That's all I have to worry about. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Then that's, I like the sound of that. Um, I, I wonder just uh, something, I don't want to go very deep into this, but uh, how much do you, um, do you have to learn about nutrition in order to help people with, with psychologically? Um, so my, my program is diet agnostic. So I, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a medical mm-hmm. doctor. Um, I really focus on thought processes and helping people mm-hmm. stick to their diet. Mm-hmm. That said, I will tell you that um, this won't work if you use these rules to create an overly restrictive diet. Mm-hmm. If you create a uh, – usually people are losing more than a pound or two per week. I, I know that it's going to bounce back the other way. Okay. Um, there are authentic needs behind cravings very frequently, not just emotional needs, but physical needs. Mm-hmm. For example, the other half of how I got off the chocolate was not just with the idea that I don't eat pig slop, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. But when I would have the craving, I would say, well, what do I really need? And I experimented with a lot of things, um, mostly with smoothies. And eventually I found uh, a head of kale juiced and six bananas would take away the craving for chocolate. Mm-hmm. I'm not prescribing that. I don't know if it'll no. work for you. You know, I'm, I'm 6'4". I needed some energy. It was usually in the afternoon. And I had an authentic biological need. Now we're back to the conversation about the survival drive having been wrestled away from where it belonged. I'm trying to put it back to where it does belong. So I'm not mm-hmm. just not having chocolate. I'm also nutrifying myself in the way that I personally believe I should. Some people would be low carb and they would think they should have some, you know, grilled chicken and vegetables or something like that. Okay. But I, so I, you know, personally, I'm a whole foods plant-based person and I think that works better, but half of my clients are low carb or ketogenic or, you mm-hmm. know, doing some dietary philosophy. That's mostly the opposite. I, I have success with all of them at about the same rate. Mm-hmm. The, um, it's only when people start to make rules that deprive the body. Like, like there's some rules you can't make. I, I can't make a rule that says I will never pee again. No matter how consciously I try to override that, 10 or 12 hours from now, we're going to find out something different. Actually, more like four or five because I'm 56 mm-hmm. years old. But, yeah. I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you early. <laughs> there, yeah. see? You, put, you, know, you, you think you're embarrassing yourself today. I'll get, I'll get, up, get up there with you. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, we're prostate buddies. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. But that's what, yeah. you know, that's what I mean. Um, okay. So um, I guess I'm just thinking of it in terms of hormones. Cause it sounds like I want to know, I think like hormones are something that really affect people a lot and that's what's kind of driving us some of this stuff. So I want to know how to affect them obviously with nutrition. I know a lot about that as I've been thinking about it for a couple of years and acting and experimenting, but psychologically I'd like to learn more. How can I affect hormones outside of, and is that with, mm making connections that does that lead to i don't really know 
Yeah, I, okay. I don't. I don't really know. It, it's a little beyond my expertise. That's something I would interview you about. Okay, great. Okay, no, no that's which, was... which I'd be happy to do, by the way. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I don't know how much I know about it. I know just on the nutritional part, I've been getting a lot better at it. And I think that that's part of what I say when I say that I, I don't feel deprived. Is just, it's just my body, my hormones are working for me and they just don't tell me I'm not hungry when they used to yeah. tell me I was. Um, but I think we could do a lot of that with our minds as well. There's a huge component. When you said the other half of your story, I've got another half, which is about how I've been thinking about myself and, and who, you know, who I want to be and what kind of person is what kind of person I want to be. And then choosing those behaviors, building those habits and creating those uh, neural pathways or connections or whatever you would. Uh, There's a woman I was dating for a while. She's a hypnotist and she used hypnosis to overcome allergies. I mean, for herself at first, Mm -hmm. Um, she's allergic to cats and I had a cat and, and she says that the mind can, um, teach the immune system to not respond to the histamine as a threat. I don't totally understand it, but I I think those things are possible. I think those things are possible. Hey, Matt, Matt, I have a call at the top of the hour, so I'm going to have to go in a minute. Yeah. Would it it be okay if I told people where they can get a free copy of the book? Yes, I can. Yeah, we'll we'll wrap it right now. So I, yeah, where can they get a copy of the book? Where else should (laughs) they go, by the way, to find you and learn more about you? You can get everything at Mm neverbingeagain.com. Go to neverbingeagain.com click on the big red button. We'll give you a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We also have a set of food plan starter templates. These are sets of rules that you can modify for yourself. And we made them for every diet we could think of. So whether you're low carb or high carb or vegan or a carnivore or point counter or a calorie counter, we, we came up with sets of rules so you could have some examples. And then I know this sounds really weird in theory, it, it, it sounds like, um, like, why does Matt have a doctor on who has a pig inside of him? That's just a, just kind of a, a weird guess to have. It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like it must be very harsh, but it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving process. And I wanted you to hear how that works. I recorded a bunch of full-length coaching sessions, and that's all. Um, that's also free. So n- mm-hmm. neverbingeagain.com. Click on the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. I love the sound of it. Thanks very much. Well. Um, Glenn, thanks very much for coming on. I just, uh, you know, it was really fun to talk to you and, and get and that, put it with the pig and all that stuff. I like how it's put. I uh, have a new way to think about it now. So I appreciate that. And, uh, and I had fun too. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I never binge again. Yep. Me neither. All right, great. Um, <laughs> everybody else, uh, stop beating yourself up and stop believing that you can't do it. Listen to this interview again. Uh, look into Dr. Livingston's books and work and uh, go to neverbingeagain.com and uh, we'll have that all up there and see if you can't reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person. I'll see you guys next time. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side.